you know, the movie industry is very funny that way. If the data says that we're amazing, we're, we're sharing it immediately with you. If the data says we're no good, what data? We don't have the data. You know, like there's no data. I don't know what you're talking about. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition, joined once again by our co-host, Rebecca Polly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro. This week, we've got a variety of topics to cover, including an appearance from our special guest, Vincenzo Guzzo, the CEO of Cinemas Guzzo, the third largest circuit in Canada, talking about the latest round of cinema closures in that market and how that's affecting operations for Canadian cinemas. Yeah, Daniel, I'm, I'm uh, really excited that we were able to uh, to get Vincenzo for this episode in particular because he is a, a very passionate and an articulate executive when it comes to exhibition. Felt fitting to have him on our 100th episode of the Box Office Podcast. I can tell you when we started the podcast was, I think, three days after the cancellation of CinemaCon 2020, if you had asked me if there were still going to be cinema closures because of the pandemic, a hundred episodes into this uh, show, uh, yeah, I would have probably responded unfavorably. Unfortunately, that's the case. And Vincenzo will be able to come in, give us some perspective on what those challenges are, some of those frustrations that I think a lot of cinema owners are feeling at this point in the pandemic when there isn't clear visibility on what the rules of the game are in order to operate cinemas in these peaks and valleys that we have with COVID cases rising and falling. Yeah. Meanwhile, as COVID uh, continues to mess up the exhibition industry and many other industries in myriad ways, Daniel, the uh, the, the regular non-COVID news just kind of keeps coming. The industry has to keep operating day by day. And uh, to that purpose, we have some new news from Marcus that feels very, uh, you know, nothing to do with, with COVID, which is always nice, nice news to hear at this point. Always pleasant uh, when we get just regular business as usual updates here. And this is, I think, an important step when we talk about the top circuits. Marcus Theaters, the number five circuit in North America, the fourth largest in the United States, the only one out of that top five to not have previously instituted their own in-house subscription program. As we know, cinema subscription programs have been a major trend in this industry, dating back a couple of years after the very failed general subscription of MoviePass, I think really pushed exhibitors to do this on their own and to get it right. Marcus was probably the biggest circuit in the North American market to not have gone in that direction. I remember some conversations I'd had with Greg Marcus from that company that they put in a lot of research over the years. They hadn't been convinced. So the fact that Marcus is now introducing a pilot program of subscription in Ohio and Nebraska this month here in January, I think signals an important shift in strategy from that circuit. 
Daniel, you mentioned this is a, a pilot program. It seems kind of uh, kind of fitting over the next few months when we're not having so many big blockbuster films. It's looking like it's going to be pretty quiet at the box office compared to what we're looking at coming this summer. So, uh, what are the uh, what are the bits and bobs? What are the details of how they're working this program out over the next few months? So the name of the program, Rebecca, is going to be called MovieFlex, and there's going to be two different programs available initially in Ohio and Nebraska. The regular MovieFlex plan, the basic plan, is going to be priced at $9.99 per month, and that includes a regular 2D screening, one ticket to a 2D screening. You can pay an upcharge if you want to enjoy a premium format, either PLF, 3D, immersive seating. Those credits, like we've seen in other programs, aren't valid for special events. That usually means one-off screenings, events, certain event cinema programming. That doesn't fall into the regular subscription. But an important feature here is unused credits in this monthly program do roll over every month as long as the subscription continues to be active. It's going to be tied into the exhibitor's existing loyalty program, uh, Magical Movie Rewards, and will include a 10% discount off concessions. So that's the regular MovieFlex basic program. They do have a second tier to it called MovieFlex Plus. That's gonna be priced at $14.99 per month, and that includes unlimited admission to participating films, and that's going to be determined by movie studios. So that selection of films that you can go an unlimited number of times is going to be curated, it's gonna change week to week, and it's going to include discounted admission to all other movies that aren't part of this unlimited roster. Now, free admissions are going to be available every Tuesday of the week. You're gonna get 10% off concessions and the option of having a monthly companion ticket. Marcus is going to be introducing these concepts, like I mentioned, in Ohio and Nebraska this month in January. And using the data, using the lessons they learned from it, will take additional decisions on what the future of it is in the coming months. Yeah, Daniel, I'm, I'm definitely uh, curious and excited to see how this plan uh, pans out over the coming months and, and really how subscription programs at, at Marcus and other North American chains evolve as we move into a more movie-heavy period after what looks to be a pretty quiet Q1 in terms of uh, film releases. Uh, we also have some news from the second largest exhibition chain in the world, that being, of course, Cineworld. Uh, they've released some uh, financial data about the last six months of 2021 and how the revenue in those months from both box office and concessions stack up against the revenue in those same months in 2019. Uh, now, it's a, it's a lot of numbers, obviously, a lot of different percentages. They have it split between uh, the United States, where Cineworld operates as Regal and the other countries in which they operate. Of course, primarily uh, they have that presence in the UK and Ireland. Uh, you can visit our website, boxofficepro.com, to see the complete breakdown. But uh, Daniel, what I really found interesting looking at this data is the months in which revenue for Regal slash Cineworld uh, came closest to meeting, or in some cases even 
exceeded the revenue from those same periods in 2019. In the US, we got closest in the month of December, where uh, revenue totaled 91% of what it did in December 2019. That's incredible, Rebecca, and that's really based off of the performance, we have to assume, of Spider-Man alone, because as we know, had other titles on the market performed anywhere near the expectations we had for them, that 9% gap, we have to think would have been filled. We would have been like for like had these other movies simply performed. Yeah, you look at December 2019, I mean, we weren't slacking off in that department exactly. We had Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, so it's not like it was an easy month to be. But Daniel, hold on to your hats here, because if you look at the uh, UK, Ireland, and rest of the world category, in the month of October, revenue for Cineworld theaters was 127% what it was in October of 2019. And that, of course, is because right before October 2021, specifically on September 28th, we saw the release in the UK and Ireland of No Time to Die. So um, what this data really says to me here is that well, it's, it's, it's something that we all know that's been spoken about before, but it, but it's really hammered home here in these figures from Cineworld that the recovery of the cinema sector depends on these films, on, on these big blockbusters that people want to come out and see, you know, so that that's, um, you know, good news slash bad news considering uh, the slate of films that we have coming up over the next three months. But then, man, when we get into Q2 and we start seeing studios push out these bigger, more anticipated blockbusters, yeah, really looking forward to how that is going to contribute extremely positively to uh, the cinema industry's global recovery, just looking at these Cineworld numbers as an example. And adding to that, of course, not only the availability of titles to cinemas, but let's face it, the influence that exclusivity windows are going to have in that recovery. I'm specifically talking about the impact of Warner Brothers backtracking from its 2021 decision to make its entire theatrical slate available day and date at home through HBO Max. They're going to be exclusive to theaters for a period of time in 2022. You have to think some of those numbers that were a little bit soft, they're going to be stronger thanks to this shift in strategy, starting, of course, on March 4th with the highly anticipated The Batman from director Matt Reeves, starring Robert Pattinson as The Dark Knight. That's really going to be, I think, the first indication of how these blockbusters are going to be performing in 2022. But leading into how the market is faring right now, we actually had a pretty good weekend with an overperformer opening in the North American market, Rebecca, a movie that we both saw last week. We both really liked. We had the filmmakers on in last week's episode as well. Scream from Paramount opening to $30 million over the three-day weekend and $34 million from the four-day holiday frame in North America across 3,664 screens. A great start for a movie that we were a little bit concerned by the Omicron situation. We were a little bit concerned on where audiences were. But I think by all means, this movie performed a bit better than we expected. Overseas, some of that momentum is sustained, grossing 18 million across 50 markets. That's 23% above Scream 4 on a like-for-like basis across the same group of markets. And that main comparison point we had for this movie Halloween Kills, 
Scream is now performing 57% above that Halloween kills performance over that same group of markets. I'm thinking that exclusivity decision of not making it openly available on Peacock helped mitigate some of those piracy concerns with Scream this weekend. The worldwide QM stands at 48.6 million through Sunday. So it's a nice bit of momentum for Scream overseas. Of course, these are a number of number two openings because still in release, we can't fail to forget Spider-Man No Way Home. Mm. I mean, speaking of films that kind of uh, help if you have a prior knowledge of the franchise, this film helps if you have a prior knowledge of three previous <laughs> incarnations of the franchise, and that in no way kept people from uh, coming out to see the movie, both in that first weekend and moving on as we enter the second month of release for the film. Uh, it earned uh, $20 million over the three-day weekend, $25 million when you add in Martin Luther King Day, that being on just under 4,000 screens. Uh, through Monday, its domestic QM is just shy of $703 million, making it the fourth highest grossing picture of all time in the domestic market. We'll see how much it can hold. It's been performing very well since it released in mid-December. Overseas, we had 33.4 million from over 18,000 screens in 63 markets for the latest Spider-Man film. The overseas QM is close, getting closer to that $1 billion mark. We're at 926 million overseas for Spider-Man No Way Home. Through Sunday, a global total of 1.62 billion. In Latin America, Spider-Man No Way Home is now the highest grossing film of all time in Mexico with $72 million. And the second biggest film of all time in Brazil, Central America, and Ecuador. Fantastic run regionally for this movie. As we know, the global release calendar is going to be slow in the coming weeks. There's really not going to be anything that exhibitors are going to be focused on until Sony releases Uncharted in mid-February. And that's a concern, of course, for most exhibitors here in North America and around the world. But top of mind for exhibitors in the Canadian provinces of Ontario and Quebec is unfortunately simply reopening their theaters. With cinemas in the provinces of Ontario and Quebec in Canada remaining closed with zero indication whatsoever on what it will take to reopen in those two specific places in the country, a huge concern for a sector that has had to go through so much. It's the only examples we have here in the domestic market of regional closures due to Omicron. We wanted to take that opportunity to speak with someone we knew would have an opinion and a very, uh, let's call it a very passionate and emotional take on the topic, Vincenzo Guzzo from Cinemas Guzzo. Uh, yeah, Daniel, uh, great to speak to, to Vincenzo. As you say, he is a man who is extremely passionate uh, about this industry. So with no further ado, let's let Vincenzo uh, take the mic here. Vincenzo, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a very difficult time period for cinemas in Canada and Quebec especially. So thank you for taking the time with us today to chat about your circuit and the market. Before we dive into everything that's been going on in the recent weeks, could you give us a little bit of a background on your circuit, where it started and your experience working as a theatrical exhibitor? We're a, uh, we're a Montreal, Greater Montreal, Quebec-based uh, uh, theater. 
10 locations, 143, 45 screens, nine IMAXs. Uh, we're adding another one in our latest location. We just opened the uh, 17th of December, a 12 screen complex. So in the middle of what we thought was the end of closures, uh, uh, with the opinion of public health, we reopened uh, or we opened that location and then we got closed down three days later. We are Canada's third largest, Quebec's second largest movie exhibitor and uh, Quebec's largest Quebec-owned uh, movie circuit. Uh, we've been around since 1974. My father started the company. Uh, I started with him in the early 90s. Took care of all the legal fighting with uh, back then uh, Odeon and famous players and you know, made sure clearances were dropped and so forth and so forth. And uh, I think U.S. distributors have never made so much money since I won that argument about <laughs> dropping clearances in, uh, in Canada. Well, you've certainly uh, fought your fair share of battles here in the exhibition side. You've seen just how much this industry has changed over the decades, obviously a multi-generation exhibitor. Uh, before we go into some of those changes, the circuit's been around now for nearly 50 years. What would you say describes your circuit's identity? And how does it set apart from other cinema chains in North America? Well, we're the first ones who uh, said that, you know, everybody, you know, I think our slogan that defined us uh, early on was, uh, you've chosen the movie you want to watch. You should have the right to choose which theater you want to see it in. Uh, and we knew that as long as people did not have free will to go where they wanted to see a movie. Movie exhibitors would not renovate. There was no reason to bring in stadium seating. There was no reason to bring in multi-megaplex complexes. There was no reason to update, right? You could have these old vintage look cute theaters, but they were still old dingy looking theaters. So we were the ones that brought in 24 inch wide seats. You know, we're the first ones who brought in uh, uh, stadium seating in the Montreal, greater Montreal area. And we're also the ones that brought in Cheapy Tuesday, Cheapy Wednesday, and, and created it in a way that, you know, going to the movies remained on a box office level, very accessible. And we believed that the more movies we would show and the more theaters played the same movies, the quicker those movies would step aside. And, and that means that there would be more room for Canadian content, Quebec content, and form content per se, right? And that's why we were the first ones to build 18 screen complexes in the Montreal, greater Montreal area. And we made sure that people got, you know, the large screen, the, 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 the immersive sound, but also the comfort and the choice of the movie they wanted to see. They didn't have to go, you know, drive 20, 30, 40K and drive downtown Montreal because we weren't allowed to play movies in the suburbs. So, you, you know, we're, we're known as the... Uh, the true independent, but that wanted to play big budget movies and not necessarily, you know, independent in the sense of art house content. I mean, on that subject of uh, giving audiences the freedom to see the movies that they want to see, how they want to see them, uh, giving people options. It's certainly a topic that's relevant now with COVID and giving people uh, their own freedom to determine their own level of risk that they might want to take. You know, not everyone's level of comfort is going to be the same, and that's fine. In Quebec right now, that choice to go to the movies, if you are comfortable enough to do so, uh, has been taken away. Can you give us some background on where this round of closures started, how it came about, and where you are now in terms of have there been any indications of when things might uh, ease up some? The funny thing is they've actually used 
going to the movies as a, as a coercive measure to force people to get vaccinated. Basically, they've said, if you want to go to a movie, you got to be double vaxxed or you can't go to a movie, right? So, and, and, the, and the Minister of Health said it. He goes, we need to force these, you know, anti-vaxxers or whatever we want to call them to get vaccinated. That was his, you know, which is very funny because what you're basically doing under a sanitary emergency, you're allowed to impose vaccination. But what you're doing is you're going around it and you're trying to get businessmen like me to be the bad guys and have the stick and force people to get double vaccinated. Then you have to remember that we are now mid-November and I call up public health and I say, look, I got a theater to open. I want to know, oh, am I okay to open this theater or am I going to get slapped on the hands and you guys are going to shut us down for Christmas? And the answer from them was, look, Mr. Guzzo, we were not going to shut you down in December 2020, but you still were shut down because of a political decision. Trust me, things are nowhere near as bad today as they were in 2020. So I opened the theater on the 17th of December. So I opened it on the 15th as the, you know, the, what I would call the ribbon cutting or the 35 millimeter film cutting. And then on the 16th, the government does a press conference and drops everybody to 50% capacity. And I say, you know what? I'm going to shut up about it. I'm okay with it. We can live with 50%. We'll just double we're up the open. number. Of, as long as we're open. We're open. We'll double up the number of Spider-Man screens. We'll still get the capacity we need. We're good. 17 comes along, 18 comes along, 19 comes along. We have record numbers. Clearly, people have decided to come back to the movies. We're up 20, 22% on the same weekend in 2019. So we're happy. You know, we're like a, a duck in water. We're the happiest people in the world. To then get an emergency press conference at 1 o'clock on the 20th. And 15 minutes before, I get a Zoom call from the Minister of Culture who says, we're shutting everybody down. We don't know for how long. It's a very dire situation out there. The whole world's going to crumble. Do they, blah, do they, blah, blah, do they blah, even blah. give you an indicator of how long, such as oh, when positive case rates get to this level or two weeks after this? Well, the truth of the matter is this government, so the, the provincial government, has nothing. I mean, they clearly haven't understood what it is to have a movie theater because I have a 115,000 square foot movie theater and they're getting the same subsidy as a a 5,000 square foot restaurant I own is getting, right? So clearly somebody's not understanding that the rental costs are totally different. Somebody's not understanding the impact of that. The pizza in my restaurant, I have to make it before I can sell it. The movie theaters, those movies are coming out in the U.S. And if they're coming out in the U.S., they're coming out and that's it. There's nobody who's going to prevent Quebecers from driving across the border, going to the U.S. and watch a movie or going to Ontario and watch a movie. And in fact, Tons of people on social media have posted, sorry, Mr. Guzzo, but we went to Ontario to watch the movie. As you mentioned, Vincenzo, the very delicate thing that we have to balance here as an industry is A, acknowledging that, of course, we are in an evolving health crisis, where, as you mentioned, things change depending on when the pandemic has changed. You've been asked to close your cinemas in different points of the pandemic. You've exceeded to doing so. The frustration, of course, exists when there is no clear direction and no clear communication to businesses that are impacted. Where the biggest problem is, is that, you know, I don't want to jinx myself, but I didn't get COVID. And, and I'm pretty much saying enough is enough. And I'm triple vaxxed. And I'm still saying enough is enough. And the truth of the matter is, if you're going to tell people, you see, a sanitary emergency gives you extraordinary power. So for me, if you use the extraordinary powers 
that means that your behavior is in line with your rhetoric. My problem is that when you have extraordinary powers, and all you do is you use them against corporations and against people, but you don't. You got to remember, only 10% of Quebec's population is non-vaccinated. I mean, you wouldn't be violating that many people's rights if you forced vaccination, right? So if you don't It just shouldn't force- be your responsibility as an exhibitor to then play a role that the government can simply do on its own, but maybe isn't doing it because it's- Unpopular. Maybe not the best thing, right? Right, but what's interesting to notice is the following. If you would, if, if you would actually impose forced vaccination, what would you be doing? You would be triggering anti-constitutional actions against you, saying you can't do that because we're not in a valid sanitary emergency. They'd have to prove themselves. That's right. Knowing that, what do you do? You backdoor the situation and you say, let corporations be the bad guys. You can't use charter rights against a corporation. A corporation can't use it against the government. It's an individual against the state. So, hey, we're going to still stay in a sanitary emergency. Nobody can force us to prove anything. And we're going to keep the, that stick and we're not going to use it. We're just going to wave it around, but we're never going to use it. Well, I kind of have a, a broad sort of two-part question for you. Certainly this, uh, on some levels, incomprehensible uh, rigmarole of opening, closing, opening, closing. I mean, that is that is top of mind for you right now, obviously, but it is far from the only uh, monkey wrench that COVID has thrown in the works for the exhibition community over the last two years. We have things like the changing of theatrical exclusivity windows, companies kind of taking the opportunity to push certain things day and date to maybe shore up their streaming platform, shore up their uh, their stockholder price at the expense of cinemas, perhaps, before Quebec had to close down again, before we are in this current crisis point that we are in. Where were you in the recovery process? And how did things like the changing stance on Windows and studios going day and date, how has that affected your bottom line? So ultimately, you know, what's interesting is during the first wave of closures, what we noticed is that test we didn't want to do, you know, or that test that everybody was sort of doing. But, you know, so we did it once in Portugal where we dame dated a movie, but, you know, uh, Disney wouldn't share the data results on if it was helpful or not helpful. Did they make money, not make money? We were all arguing and, and what the studios didn't want to say, but I would always throw in their face was, you want to change our business model, not for the avatars of this world movie, but for the bad movies, the movies that failed, the movies that did not give you back amazing returns. So what you, what you want is you want us to take the B movies and let you take them from theatrical to streaming or platforms or PVOD much quicker so that you can try and benefit from the window reduction. But when it comes to a bond or when it comes to an avatar, you will extend that window as long as possible. And so... COVID forced us to be quiet and actually see them do it. What's interesting is how little big movies actually went straight to PVOD. Well, I mean, the the, the top 10 grossing films of the year, only one of them was day and date. None of them came from Warner Brothers. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty clear financially how that shook out. Right. I mean, I think it's clear that the U.S. studios have divided themselves amongst real friends to exhibition and understanding the business and people who just need to get that stock price up and exercise stock options because anyway, 
I got a 10-year tenure here as CEO, and then I'm gone anyway, so I got to cash in as much as I can. You know, I, I think somewhere along the way, the movie industry, the studios and exhibition are their biggest enemies on how desperate we get and, and how we don't want to take a stance sometimes, right? Warner Brothers has proven that it's done some tests, but ultimately it is a friend of exhibition. Sony has proven it's a friend of exhibition. Universal still, you know, got a foot in and a foot out. Disney has proven they've got one thing in mind and it's their well-being and nobody else's and they don't care. But you know, this kind of stuff comes and goes. You can't be on the top all the time. And I'm just hoping exhibition will remember when Disney's not at the top. Now, we have to remember that, to be fair, some of these decisions aren't being made by people working in the theatrical distribution departments of these companies. I look at that Warner Brothers decision, that Warner Media decision, and let's face it, the person that came up, the face of that decision, lasted five more months in that job. Warner Brothers has now backtracked from that day and date strategy. We, we have to sort of separate the tensions on a negotiation level with the people in these theatrical distribution departments from the people sometimes above them making decisions that sometimes benefit their own interests as opposed to the industries. But, but worse than that, Daniel, you do realize that what made Netflix so popular was that it had access to all of the studio's libraries, right? So, so, so basically what happened- not, And not, not so much anymore. Not so much anymore, but that's the key, right? The key was what made them so amazing was that you didn't have to go to HBO and just get Warner Brothers stuff. You didn't have to go to Disney and get just their stuff. You go to one place and have it all. For $9.99, it was amazing. I mean, if you look at the timing of when Netflix saw life, it's in the mess of the Enron, let's reevaluate assets. And man, that it, it must have been really great for studios to sell their libraries for $100 million to Netflix and then argue with their auditors and say, look, I told you my library was worth at least 5 billion bucks. Look, that's only one non-exclusive guy sold it for 100 million. I told you, don't tell me my toilet paper's not worth 50 bucks a roll. Come on, right? It was, it was a great timing for an accounting, you know, redefinition of what the asset of that library is. And everybody, I think, was more concerned on not losing value for their library than it was really, how do I use my library adequately and appropriately? So, a lot of things happen. A lot of things are going to continue happening. But one thing's for sure. What we have seen short term is that there is not one movie that can actually make money off going straight to DVD or PVOD or whatever without going to theatrical release. No movie could make a billion dollars. In other words, with 75% of the world on lockdown, Easter of 2020, Trolls or, or uh, yeah, I think it was called Trolls. Yeah, Trolls, Trolls World Tour. Yeah. Only made 100 million bucks. Seriously? Like, North America would have made more than that theatrically with that movie. You know, you know what? These streamers were making a ton of money off of these streaming releases. They would give us data, but they're not giving us data, so. But that's right. And see, and ultimately, that's where the key is, right? Is that the data isn't being handed over. And so nobody's understanding, you know, like, you know, the movie industry is very funny that way. If the data says that we're amazing, we're, we're sharing it immediately with you. If the data says we're no good, what data? We don't have the data. You know, like there's no data. I don't know what you're talking about. 
the best home theater system you can buy on the market is going to be a distant second place to the worst cinema auditorium on the market simultaneously. And that's that's part of the messaging that that we have to distinguish. Now, as we talk about the entire industry, the, the challenges you're going through in Quebec right now, the challenges we're going in theatrical as a whole with changing models, Quebec as a market, as a specific place for exhibition, is such an interesting example of something that works very differently than many other markets. It's a place where you have uh, obviously a different language, you have a very unique audience, you have a thriving, a thriving local cinema going and, and, and filmmaking industry, a number of big name directors coming out of the Quebec film industry, a number of different players, uh, multinationals, different companies have tried to make Quebec work What's the secret? I mean, being a local player, being the number one Quebec from Quebec circuit in the market now, how would you define what sets your province differently than everyone else? And how much is that local talent of Quebec filmmakers suffering because of these new models? So, you know, the truth of the matter is Quebec is is, is its own biggest enemy in the sense that as long as we're producing movies, so that we want people to see our movies, those movies were seen. And our market share for native Quebec product was 21% at a certain point. I mean, that's huge. I mean, can you imagine something like Texas saying 21% of admissions in the state of Texas come from Texas filmmakers? That's unheard of in the North American market. It's it's huge. And, And in fact, that helped us in the years where there seemed to be a recession for going to the movies in the U.S., that 21% offset that balance and made us stable. Then the problem is that somewhere, somehow, somebody said, but you know, making comedies and making sarcastic or parodies on our politicians or on our, it's just not, you know, it's not giving us Academy Award recognition, let's call it, right? We want to win awards. We want to win festivals. So now we've got to make these deep-rooted, troubled movies where there's, you know, an introspective and like where, you know, when we leave the movie theater, we're supposed to be reflecting on the meaning of life. Truth of the matter is, I'm not saying those movies shouldn't be made. I like watching them, but I like watching both. So I'd, I'd like to have, have the option of seeing that one and the comedy. That's right. But the problem is that we don't realize that some of our best movie producers, movie directors... They're gone. They, they've left Quebec and they've gone to the U.S., right? Dune was done by one of ours. It was a Quebecer. And so we've got to ask ourselves in a such a flourishing, creatively healthy market, why is our talent willing to leave to go to the U.S.? And that's because politically, we're making those people feel guilty that if they do a commercially viable movie, they're actually betraying the image of that poor artist. You know, I mean, there's still that craziness that sometimes if you're an artist and you're successful at your art, you're a sellout, right? Well, Villeneuve has been able to make two great big movies, Blade Runner 2049 and Dune, that are actually really, really good. And I think can appeal both to the everyday moviegoer and to specialty audiences. Well, Vincenzo, we really want to thank you for all the time you've, you've given us here today. We, we want to close up by asking your opinion about the future, about the next 10 years. We, we, we've talked a lot about the challenges that are before us, but you've been in this business 
your entire life, basically. You come from this multi-generational exhibitor family. What do you think exhibition needs to do to thrive within the next decade? I think exhibition needs to do two things. A, it's got to step up the crazy governments like mine in Quebec and say enough is enough. And two, it's got to actually go back to the studios and say, guys, let's stop forgetting that movies are about a script. They're about storytelling. One of the greatest comments that James Cameron made to me once when I said to him, I said, how do you feel having the two top movies back in the days, you know, with Titanic and Avatar? How, I mean, how do you do that? How do you? And he looked at me and in a very friendly way said to me, you do realize it's the same story, right? <laughs> what, what do you mean? <laughs> it's the love story. People like it for a reason. Yeah, he goes, it, it's the same story, just different way of telling a love story, a tragedy. The story needs to be important. The renegade part of the story, the unforbidden love, you know, all of that stuff's got to come back in storytelling. That's what we need to do as exhibitors, remind studios, step up to the plate and produce what people need to see and want to see. And hopefully those movies will be released in theaters. That's the other part of the equation. Vincenzo, thank you so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate the time. Best of luck in uh, in the closures, obviously, with uh, with Quebec. Thank you very much, guys. And, and, and we're creeping our fingers crossed for, uh, for legal success in, in reopening theaters. And thank you very much to Vincenzo Guzzo from Cinemas Guzzo in Canada for joining us this week. Next week, we have an interview with the head of the United Drive-In Theater Owners Association, John Vincent Jr., talking about UDATOA's annual convention in Florida and going into detail on how the cinema recovery is going for drive-ins during their off-season. The winter months is always a, a slow time for drive-ins all over the country. We'll be talking to John next week. And before I forget, for any exhibitor listening in around the world, if you access the show notes to this episode, you will find a link to our box office barometer poll. It is the only poll asking exhibitors around the world to give their opinions on outstanding achievements across the industry. You can make your voice heard. You can access that poll through the show notes here on the episode. Uh, yeah, Daniel, this is the second year we're doing uh, this barometer poll uh, where we ask exhibitors to really share their opinions and share their voices on the vendors and distributors and, and people they work with. I think it's fair to say that last year, um, some of the responses we expected and some of them came as surprises to us. So if uh, you do have a, a vendor or an exhibitor relations department or a particular person in this industry who uh, you as an exhibitor uh, want to say a little thank you for, express your support for, uh, please do go on to our box office barometer poll and, uh, and vote for them. And that wraps up another episode of the Box Office Podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced in collaboration between the Box Office Company, Box Office Pro and Record Edit Podcast. If you like what we do, don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review us, share it with someone. Make sure that this can get to as many people as possible. Help us get to that second hundred. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And we'll be with you again next week. Bye.